You're listening to episode 38 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasachipote.com. You can subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Hi, everyone. My name is Irina Maria, and I'm from Escondido, California, and I love listening to Pasa Chipotle podcasts, so tune in and enjoy it. Hola, and welcome back to another episode of Pasa Chipotle. And if you are tuning in for the first time, a very warm welcome. Along this show, and since the beginning of it, I have worked hard to track down and connect with people that through their work continuously add value to the way in which we understand, consume and appreciate Mexican food around the world. My guest today is a very young and incredibly passionate advocate of the farm-to-table movement, Jorge Gaviria, a former Forbes 30 under 30 who is the founder and CEO of Macienda. After obtaining a degree in media, culture and communication at the New York University, Jorge went on to create a farm-to-table experience in Italy that was part of the Putney Students' Travel Programs, and this pushed him immediately to pursue one of his ultimate passions in life, which is food. And so he went to work at Maialino, which is a renowned Italian-inspired restaurant at the heart of New York. But then the opportunity came up for him to join the apprenticeship program at Dan Barber's Blue Hill at Stonebones. You might remember Chef Barber from the first season of the docuseries Chef's Table. And if you haven't seen it, please, I urge you to watch it. Because you will understand why that experience prepared Jorge for working his way backwards in the food production chain after realizing that the hyper-industrialization of food production causes an increasingly worrying detachment to heritage food systems that ultimately has a profound and detrimental effect in our food system and, of course, in our consumption habits and health. Deeply embedded in Jorge's memory was a trip to Mexico, in which food was key to helping connect with his Mexican heritage, and it was precisely the quintessential flavor and texture of freshly made corn tortillas that later inspired him to create a company that pays tribute to these traditions and in his words, elevates the everyday tortilla for the next generation of eaters, sustained in a farm-to-tortilla model. In this interview, Jorge shared an incredibly pertinent and much-needed analysis about the benefits of going to extreme lengths to educate partners, clients, and shareholders about the environmental, cultural, economic, and gastronomical benefits of using Mexican corn to produce and enjoy delicious corn tortillas in the US. We also talked about business building and the celebration of traditional foodways. On my website, pasachipotle.com, 
There is a special blog post about this episode with extra material, including videos about Masienda's work. The visual version on YouTube also has extra content that illustrates this very enticing talk about Mexico's gastronomic pillar, which is corn and, of course, corn tortillas. And without further delay, I hope you enjoy this episode. Jorge, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. I have to say that I'm really enthusiastic about your business model. I think Macienda is such good news in many respects. So let's go straight to the opening question. And uh, well, in plain English, businesses become successful when they offer solutions to real problems. So by all means, tell me what is wrong with American tortillas. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Rocio. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, you know, I think I don't want to problematize tortillas for the entire country. I think the, the biggest thing I saw in 2013 when I started thinking about founding Macienda was that there was just more to be desired. And as a consumer of food and one who values a really strong connection to food um, as a way of enhancing the experience, I just didn't feel like I had a strong connection to tortillas and the history and technique and preparation of how they're made. And I certainly didn't have a connection to the supply chain behind it. So honestly, that's the rabbit hole that I fell down. We've come a long way from the traditions that have defined the cuisine for a long time, and tortillas are no exception to that. Uh, we've taken a lot of shortcuts in the commercialization of food and the hyper-industrialization of agriculture and food. And I think that that's kind of more where I saw room for improvement. I should say that the innovation wasn't so much that we were creating something new. We could never take credit for that. I think the innovation was that we were finding new ways to think about supply chains and think about traditional foods in a modern landscape, you know, that had kind of done away with those traditional foods and slow foods, if that makes sense. So if I get it correct, pretty much you were trying to bring closer people to not just the final product, but actually to be more also aware of the source, you know, of the ingredients from these products and the tradition attached to it, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, and I think it was it was really a process of discovery for myself and one that continues to this day. You know, when I asked myself the question in 2013, what does the supply chain of corn look like? To me, it wasn't one that was doing as best in, of a job as we could. And I didn't have to look very much farther than the foodways in Mexico to realize that this was a largely untouched but highly evolved way of growing food and enjoying food, uh, particularly corn, that didn't have a place in the marketplace in a real scalable way. I think the interesting problems to me were kind of the socioeconomic problems. Masienda works on both sides of those, you know, of the value chain. But as far as the supply chain was concerned, there were three million smallholder farmers, there still are, that produce the highest quality corn in the world. The unbelievable thing to me was that they were growing corn and they didn't have a market to absorb the surplus materials that they would have from year to year. And that is a discouraging process. You know, I, I know that feeling. It's not an easy one to wrap your head around, especially if it's happening year over year. There's not enough income coming from the farm aspect of it. We started to look at that pattern and say, well, what happens if folks are going across the border to work in the United States and there's not enough help on the farm? Well, that means that the genetics that are on the farm are now at risk of you know, potentially not being around for many more generations. 
that was really something that was compelling for me. And it, it spoke to exactly what I wanted to achieve with a company, which was to create an enormous amount of social and environmental and potentially even political good and nourish people at the same time at the other end of the value chain. Well, you touched so many aspects, you know, about migration, about the situation in the agricultural sector in Mexico, about the production chain in Mexico, about the production chain and appreciation of foods in America. But let's break it in, in little parts. So beginning with corn, right? It's so pretty much, you know, it has been a constant in, in life and these parts of the world for at least 12,000 years since its domestication. But, you know, when you think about this type of foods or the equivalent of this type of significant and so culturally meaningful uh, foods or ingredients in other countries, namely in America, I really don't think there is an equivalent for it for many reasons. You know, one of them, of course, being its own uh, history and the way it, um, it developed. You know, quite ironically, corn is today a really important part of the American agricultural economy. And according to the National Corn Growers Association, there are, give or take, around 90.2 million acres planted with corn in the U.S., which is roughly about 370,963 tons of corn produced a year. So what do you actually do with all that corn? So... What do we do with all that corn? You know, we don't use that corn, I should say, but I think the last figure I read was about about 98.5% of it goes to almost anything but human nutrition and nourishment. We're talking about the equivalent of butchers and being able to break down kind of a nose-to-tail version of there are those industrial equivalents for corn that have done an, an unbelievable job at finding dynamic uses for what started out as a food product. Obviously, ethanol is a huge consideration, and a lot of corn is adapted and hybridized for the purpose of making exceptional ethanol. And that's that's where we've come with corn in the last 50 years. And honestly, that's what I was looking at when I was thinking about starting a company that was involved in some way in telling a better story about tortillas. That's what I was looking at as the other end of the supply chain. And I just wasn't excited about that. It's ultimately what drove me to Mexico to celebrate this, as you say, a tradition that's been around for a lot longer than it's been in the U.S. And that tradition not only has a lot more experience, it tastes a heck of a lot better, at least in my opinion. You know, in one way, it's a great achievement to make the most of, you know, all the effort put behind just, you know, growing this and then obtaining that much benefit. I guess it also speaks to how it happens in history time and time again. When something that is introduced in another context, it can have, you know, life-changing impact. Uh, going back to what you were saying uh, at the beginning about pretty much the way you decided to break down and uh, sort of reframe the whole production chain of corn, which you then translated into your business model, I think... That's exactly what I find so interesting about Macienda. It was so similar to the way that specialty coffee, like the whole industry now, it's, it's operating in a very similar way because you take heirloom corn, which is just a fancy word for uh, calling the original varieties of Mexican corn, as a unique commodity. And then, just like, you know, with small batch coffee beans, you will source this corn, like you said, from family farms in, in Mexico who are producing these micro crops, which you import for wholesale and to produce also your own tortillas. 
Uh, but I want to know, like, which process did you follow to refine the business model and go from, you know, just the drawing board and actually make that idea work? And I'm also curious, which was Dan Barber's input into this really invested approach to it? Yeah, well, uh, well, I guess I suppose we can start with Dan Barber just quickly to touch on it, which is that I was still working at, at Blue Hill, which is his restaurant, when I was putting this idea together. His input was one of just support, and um, I was really inspired by the work that I was doing at Blue Hill in the ethos of the type of work we were doing there, which was maximizing the pleasure that we get from food by being much more intentional about growing produce and vegetables and our relationship with the producers and having a, that dialogue. You know, I saw the benefits of that firsthand of how extraordinary food could taste uh, if there was just more of a connection directly to the source. So I think that process is really the gift that Dan gave to me and everybody who works at Blue Hill. Kind of going back to the first question about specifically about the model, Garcia was a really organic process. And I'm not saying that because, you know, making it sound like it was easy. It, no, no part of it was easy, but it was sort of one foot in front of the other. The process was unique, though, in the sense that no one had really attempted, from what I could tell, was this idea of scaling a micro supply chain. Um, and yeah, coffee, absolutely. Uh, coffee is a, uh, it's a cash commodity crop. And corn in Mexico is not uh, largely in the communities that we work in. It's a subsistence crop. So it's an enormous amount of responsibility that we don't take lightly. We're working with the food that is being produced for someone's home and for someone's family and for a community. Because if you have a surplus, you can't just assume that that surplus is meant for the international market. You have to also really appreciate you know, there's a communal aspect to this and that local tortillerias in a small town also should be surviving on this kind of corn and celebrating it. And I'd say that's the most stark contrast between coffee and and corn, particularly heirloom corn that we work with. But yeah, I think it's having that kind of moment right now in corn, without a doubt. And it goes to the heart of connecting to the process, connecting to both the traditions and the agriculture. Telling that story to guests in restaurants was just as important. And that was just such a unique process that, again, it happened organically, bringing more people to um, an understanding and an appreciation of the culture behind it. Now, going back to your answer, I think uh, it is true what you say about the way Dan communicates the values of his company and his whole ethos speaks to this connection and this deep, almost philosophical and existential uh, link to the care and the symbiosis of looking after the soil that nourishes. Uh, but I'm sure it resonated with you when you actually talk to farmers in Mexico and getting to know what the farming activity means for them in their daily lives. I have to say that I really appreciate and recognize the immense value and impact of what you are doing with and for Mexican farmers. Thank you. <laughs> We try really hard. It doesn't go unnoticed. It makes me think that I'm sure it's a two-way learning curve. You know, it's a very complex economic situation and very precarious as well for Mexican farmers. So like having a fast track to exporting, I'm sure is something exciting. And also that raises many questions. So one of my questions is that how much will they have to rely on you to continue in business? Then it also makes me think, you know, having so many immigrants that also were farmers back when they were living here, I think maybe introducing the milpa system into the U.S. could potentially bring the same benefits because, you know, they are the experts uh, that are already working in the agro industry there. And uh, just a quick note for those who are not that familiar with the term milpa, 
uh, is the indigenous traditional crop system in Mexico that combines chiles, tomatoes, and sometimes courgettes to create a microecosystem that restores the nutrients back in the soil and creates an exchange of nutrients among the plants. But um, down to you. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. So you're absolutely right. There's this like built-in cross-pollination that's literally and figuratively happening with migrant labor, and hopefully that continues. Um, I'd say the goal now is to embrace regenerative agriculture, and that's what the MILPA system is. It's a holistic system where each crop supports the other. That's why, to me, it's like it's a no-brainer. Why not just kind of recreate that system, just like you're saying? But the times are changing, and, and consumers are changing so fast that you know agriculture has to respond to those changes. And the MILPA, more than anything, is a reflection of a sustainable way of eating. And I think as long as that ethos is becoming more of a part of our lives, and it certainly looks like that's becoming more and more a, kind of a, a widespread phenomenon, the job of the MILPA, is, it's come a long way. It's doing a great service to engendering other ways of eating and other types of cuisines. What we feel we have tried to create and promote is an open market. We pride ourselves on being a premium option and one that is very farmer-centric, taking into account their needs, the needs of a culture and our responsibility for doing our part within that ecosystem. You know, to date, we are the only ones who have really been able to figure out how to successfully translate a product that is not commercialized, really, and the way we've come to understand it in the United States and internationally treat it with minimal interference, but create something that checks all the boxes and satisfies the needs of, of a larger market. So, you know, to be able to translate and I think make sure that that corn successfully reaches the end consumer, we do a really good job at that. The option is open for our farmers to sell to whomever they want. We, we can only just keep doing that work and hope that others uh, are inclined to do the same and improve upon it. And, um, you know, I think competition is a great thing. And for you, I mean, I think it's in everybody's best interest to have a more robust uh, market and, you know, more partners to choose from, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All ships rise with the tide. Uh, all we can do is just make sure we're doing right by all of the stakeholders across the value chain and, you know, do our best and, and do what we believe is, is right by, uh, you know, our mission and what we stand for. Yeah. So something you were also mentioning was the way also uh, both countries, uh, you know, Mexico and, of course, the U.S., understand tortillas. And, you know, I have to admit, many urban dwellers in Mexico, if not most of them, we are not the kind of people that will make our tortillas by hand, just as many people around the world won't make their bread at home. So we source our tortillas here in Mexico from tortillerias or tortilla shops, and those who are very lucky can get it from tortilla-making ladies, otherwise known as tortilleras, who are the ones who do pretty much what you do, you know, that, you know, be responsible for the whole field-to-tortilla process. So let's go back to the basics, and I'll let you explain step-by-step step what happens between the moment you plant a kernel in the soil when you finally roll a tortillas to make a taco. Oh my gosh, this is a, an incredibly complex process, you know, and obviously it goes through many hands. Uh, in a very simple term, you know, we call it the milpa temesa process. It starts at the milpa, you know, we'll say short for corn farm. Um, in Oaxaca, we're talking about an area of about five hectares, maybe, maybe less than that. The corn has been hand planted and it's not just any corn. This is corn that has been saved and improved upon for generations. In some cases, hundreds, thousands of years. Farmers are making a choice of what seeds they want to grow. The corn that they like best and functions best for them and for their family and for their culture and for their cuisine. 
And I think that's the most romantic thing at the end of the day. There's a very uh, intentional process behind it, which I think is really important to articulate. They will plant it by hand. They will harvest it by hand. That is not an easy process. It is incredibly labor intensive. You have a basket on your back and you fill it up to as much as you can. And it's an enormous amount of work. It gets shelled by hand. So all of the kernels have to come off of the cob. And then for us, I'll just speak to Masi in this process. We really try to open up our aggregation as soon as possible after it's been harvested because there are no chemicals that are sprayed on this. You know, we obviously pay the farmers right then and there. It's a significant piece to the model that we do. And we ship it to the United States. Everything is in the 55 pound bag. So about 25 kilos. When it gets to the end user, the work is not done. You need to nixtamalize the corn. Oh my gosh, it's one of the most phenomenal inventions, uh, culinary innovations of all time. It was really what makes it nutritious. It's a process of soaking the corn in an alkaline solution, which allows it to break down the exterior hull of the corn, the pericarp. Um, it allows it to be workable as a result um, into a masa. It's a corn alchemy process. And it takes about, let's say, 12 hours. You have to mill the corn with a volcanic rock. is one of the oldest pieces of technology and still the best pieces of technology to do this. The step to making a tortilla, my gosh, it's months and months of work that goes into one tortilla. I wish more people knew how much work went into it without sounding boring, which I probably <laughs> No, you didn't. And of course, you know, it only took native people from Mesoamerica about 9,000 years to refine this. It's yeah. like you say, no, it's paying tribute to this technique and this very, you know, labor intense process. It works. You don't need to reinvent that in any other way that will alter or diminish the quality of the final product, right? Right. Yeah, there's wisdom in the tradition. As a professor named Amanda Galvez that we work with is said, I think it's just finding how to use it in a modern context that's been really fun. And, you know, Macienda's work is really largely entailed. Absolutely. And, uh, well, Macienda no, has produced a few little films. I think it will be, you know, very telling for people to, you know, have a visual aid to all these wonderful process that you described and just to put a face on hundreds of people that are involved in all this production chain. That would be great. We did it because it's it's an enormous amount of work that goes into it, but it's hopefully a good 90-second film to be able to explain the process and, and wet the appetite a little bit. So I think, you know, you are really sort of riding the wave of a great moment, I have to say, in the food industry, but also in the way people are, I would say, evolving uh, their perceptions about food and understanding also traditional cuisines in a way that hadn't happened before. Well, now the social economy and social media has done a great job at glamorizing the idea of ethical businesses like yours and also like how amazing it is to enjoy organic cocoa leaves on your quinoa salad while sipping a turmeric <laughs> latte. Uh, you know, there is more to it than glamour. But I would like uh, you to share what it has been for you to work with micro farmers that come from these very tightly knit communities where agriculture and the way they do it has nothing to do with glamour. And it's really at the core of their lives, their identity. So what has that process taught you and how you have reconveyed this message into your brand? Yeah, I think the values of the company have remained intact, but the way we describe our work and how we understand our work, because that's just as much of an important factor to consider. I think we've undersold it a lot because there's so much advertising of attributes and, you know, there's just so much noise and we try to produce content to be able to tell that story. I think that's been a unique experience for us in that when somebody really looks under the hood of our business and our value chain, they're pretty much blown away by the depth of work involved in it. 
It's not something that is easy to explain, right? It's a lot of information. And what do you, what information do you choose to share? Because it's not always going to be meaningful to everybody. You know, there are some parts that will resonate more with a chef and that won't resonate at all with, with a consumer at a supermarket. It's been a great exercise to understand what all of those perspectives are. And I think we're coming out of the other side now with a really firm sense of who we are and what we want to do more of. I think a lot of that really has to do with the education piece. Doing it in a way that doesn't feel preachy and doesn't feel branded in a way that, frankly, it just speaks to the passion that we have about learning this ourselves and, and just sharing it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, there is so much uh, use and abuse and about yeah. how honest businesses are. I, I understand the challenge to speaking to many different audiences. So you need to constantly produce messages that appeal to all of them you know, educating and changing perspectives about having a better understanding. That sort of takes me to how are you introducing innovation to the food industry? So is that actually scalable or are you always constricted to working in the micro or mid-industry model? Well, right now, I'd say the I'd say the innovative thinking we applied to our business was was just taking time to acknowledge that this ingredient had a history and to give it some meaning in a part of the world like the United States where it doesn't really have much meaning right now. Um, it's a fun intellectual exercise when you see the potential that we have here to reclaim flavor and quality. Owning more of the process and owning more of you know our, our responsibility and being good stewards of the land. Really, it's just what we do and it's what we love to do. We're not introducing any crazy technologies here. It's just a different way of thinking about food that we eat and that we take for granted, I think, in its simplest way. And for some, that might be innovative. And for us, it's, it's mostly just fun. <laughs> I think it's slowly changing. So like in America, many people are very familiar with Tex-Mex and Calimex kind of food. And they're used to the type of tortillas that were available for decades. But just for the sake of argument, I want you to tell people what kind of experience is uh, preparing their food using Macienda tortillas and how, in short, will make their lives better to use your, your tortillas. <laughs> Come on, sell it. <laughs> This is the part of the of the interview I struggle with is, is selling ourselves. I mean, look, I think that at the end of the day, you know, what we stand for is a connection to food. To me, that tastes better. You know, when I know where something comes from, when I know that the people who are behind it are authentic and they're engaged and if that resonates, Macienda is great. Is one of the options out there that I would definitely consider. Certainly the only option when it comes to tortillas. Before we jump to the next thing, for the, for the older folks that are in America, where can they find your tortillas? Right. Are really just trying to deepen the education that we have around being able to process corn at home. So pretty soon when you come to Macienda.com, you'll be able to get a lot more information on the steps to making and preparing mixtamal to make a really great tortilla. So that's incredibly fun. And I think anybody right now who lives in the U.S. can can tap into that. We're launching a, a masa flour, so a masa harina. It's 100% the same supply chain that we have been working with and building over the last five years. We're super excited about it because I think it just speaks to everything we try to do in terms of fostering a connection to food. We're taking a more direct approach. Um, so currently our tortillas are available in some of the Whole Foods in the country. I think that the, the internet is enabling us to do some pretty amazing things from customer service perspective. So you'll see a lot more a lot more products coming up on Masiana.com that foster you know the connection to directly to consumer. Brilliant. I understand that you are taking care of all this long process and having your eyes on pretty much all these threads that have to finish with your tortilla or with your bag of masa flour. What kind of feedback have you had from, you know, everyday people? What has been the reaction? 
people are incredibly excited. There's always, I think, the type of consumer who really gravitates to what we do. One of the most exciting things is when somebody who lives in the United States who hasn't been back home in Mexico for a while or who grew up in a Mexican household says how much this reminds them of food that their grandmother used to prepare. That's always, to me, the biggest compliment, a food memory that is really, really special, near and dear to them. Um, and then, of course, chefs are, are so exciting to watch interact with the raw ingredient because just to see that creative process with chefs and how excited they are about the product, the trust that they put in us, there's a deep fulfillment from everybody that we work with. You know. I agree completely with you that the best kind of compliment you can get from someone is, of course, uh, takes them back to that uh, connection with the family, with the land, with good memories. And also for people who are not Mexican, you know, just to sort of blow up their minds with amazing flavors they didn't know were just literally across the border. <laughs> no? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, we're just finishing now the interview, but before we say our goodbye... Are there any events uh, or some uh, new twists in your range of products? And of course, please tell the audience uh, all Macienda's social media accounts and ways of contacting you, contacting uh, Macienda. Uh, where can they follow? Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks so much, Rocio. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. You know, anybody who has any cooking questions, sourcing questions, we're working on developing just kind of more expanded information on our site, but feel free to email us at info at macienda.com. That's pretty much my direct line if you want to email and get in touch with me. We're super excited to be able to launch a masa flower that has been in development now since the beginning. So our masa flower will be available directly on our site at macienda.com. You can create your tortilla destiny. Also, I'll put it that way with, with the masa. <laughs> Make it a hashtag. Yes, exactly. You can just follow us at Masienda. So it, the words masa and tienda, masienda combined. So M-A-S-I-E-N-D-A is our account. And that's, that's really the only social media we kind of manage. We're much more one-on-one, uh, -on -one, like person-to-person -person communication in terms of our email and uh, direct messaging on Instagram. Great. Well, People will find you there. Jorge, thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, your dreams, your work, and everything you are doing with Macienda. Keep building bridges and not walls uh, <laughs> between Zonkis Mexican farms and American tables. Thank you for being here, and thank you again for your work, Jorge. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rosie. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. To find more information about this project, please go to pastachipotle.com. I really want to invite you to check this episode's blog post and YouTube version to continue enjoying loads of extra material about Macienda and the inspiring work that Jorge and his team are doing. And of course, as usual, you can find Macienda's social media links and website on this episode's notes. Support the show via Patreon. Patreon is the largest platform that connects independent creators with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast. Every donation makes a big difference. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle Podcast and be part of this delicious story. In the next episode of the show, I will continue exploring the gastronomic regions of Mexico 
and it will be all about the exuberant peninsula of Yucatan, the grand legacy of the Mayan culture and the flavors and history of the Mexican Caribbean. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Until the next time.